Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm Jared Bremen, audio engineer and editor, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. In this episode, Rob delivered a message at Shadow Mountain Community Church in El Cajon, California. As always, we would like to invite you to visit robertjmorgan.com, where you'll find Rob's blog post, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. You are going to be here next week, aren't you? You're going to bring your friends. It's going to be Easter. It's going to be Christmas. It's going to be one of the great days in the life of this church. That dear man has worked so hard to get back here. He misses you, but I talked to him yesterday. His voice is strong. His attitude, his spirit is so positive, and he has been working on this message, and this place ought to be filled to overflowing at all the services just to honor that wonderful Bible teacher and that wonderful pastor. So I would almost, I'm thinking about flying back to be here, but at least I'll be watching online. But I hope that you all take the opportunity of using this as a time to invite your friends to make this a memorable Sunday in the life of this church. I feel like I've almost worn out my welcome here, but I haven't worn out my love for being here. And you guys are just so wonderful. I appreciate so much Dr. Jeremiah He's as dear to me as anybody could be, and I appreciate his inviting me today. Now, I have a podcast, a Bible study podcast, and I'm going through the book of 1 John. And so, we're just considering today's sermon, the next installment of this podcast. So, if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter number 2. And while you're turning there, I'll open in this way. I read in the newspaper the other day about a river in Texas that flooded, and it went over a period of, uh, over a road in a, in a way that was dangerous, and so the police came and put up barricades and put officers with flashing blue lights on both sides, and a lady drove up, and she looked at it and studied it for a moment, and then she went around the barricade right across the bridge. The river swept her away, and the officers had to rescue her, and then they arrested her. And they said, why did you do that? And her answer was so simple. She just said, it didn't seem like a big deal to me. And that's a microcosm of this world. God has given us a lot of cautionary words in the Bible. He has told us these things are not good for you. They are self-destructive. There are warnings there. And so many people in our day and age just go around the boundaries because they think it's no big deal to disobey the Word of the Lord. Well, today, one of those cautioning verses or passages is here in verses 15 through 17, 1 John, near the end of the Bible, chapter 2, and verses 15 through 17 will be our study today. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, 
is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. This is as simple as you can be. There is a commandment here, and then there is some commentary or comment about that command, and then there is a commitment for those who do the will of God. So, we'll just look at it as it unfolds in the text. It begins by saying, do not love this world, which seems like a rather odd thing for John to say. He is the epistle of love who uses this word more than any of the other gospel writers, and he tells us again and again to love. He said, this is a new commandment that you love. It's an old commandment that you love. He said, God so loved. And he said, if you don't love your brother. But here he says, do not love. There are many things we're to love, but there is something we are to fall out of love with. And what is it? It's the world. Now, this is the same writer who said, for God so loved the world. And now John says, do not love the world. It's a little confusing until you remember that words have meanings that are changed by the context that they're used in. For example, a few years ago, I was speaking in Switzerland at a convention. And Switzerland in the summer is usually very nice, but on this particular week, there was a heat wave going on, and it was over 90 degrees, 90 to 100 degrees. Nothing was air-conditioned and interlocking. Some hotel was, but it wasn't the one I was staying in. And it was so hot I couldn't sleep at night. And when I got up to speak every evening, the audience was filled with people, but they had fans in both of their hands. And all I could see were them fanning themselves with any piece of paper they could find. And I just got up one day, and I looked out and saw all of this motion. And I said, I have never preached in front of so many fans. Well, that's an example of the fact that a word can mean different things in different ways at different times, and sometimes we use those for jokes. Well, this word is the same thing. In the Greek, it is cosmos. We get our English word cosmos from it, referring to the reality of all of the universe. But here, John is using this word in a special way. Sometimes when he used this word, he meant the planet itself, the continents, the rivers, the sky, the sea, the world. We use that. Uh, we use the word world in the same way to describe this planet we are on. For example, when he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. He's using it in that way. He says these false prophets are, they are spreading all over the planet. They're going into every country. They're going everywhere all over the world. You have to watch out for them. In chapter 4, verse 17 of 1 John, he says, as Christ is, so we are to be in this world. In other words, on this planet, we're to be miniature reenactments of Jesus Christ. We are replicas of Him. Jesus now is living through us on this planet by His Holy Spirit. So, one of the meanings of world can be this globe that we're on. Another idea that is in other passages is that the world is made up of the people. So, when he says world, 
He means the people in the world. So when it says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, it's not talking about the rocks or the trees or the grass or the seas. It's talking about the fact that God loves you. He loves people. He loves every boy and girl, every baby, every adult, every young person in the whole world. And he loves us so much that he gave his life for us. Or it says here in 1 John chapter 4 and, or chapter 2 and verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So here the word world or cosmos refers to people. So when John said, do not love the world, did he mean the planet? Because we go out on the coast there at Coronado or somewhere up and down the coastline, we see the sun set uh, uh, behind the Pacific, and, and it's just beautiful. We're amazed at it. We go up in the mountains. California is the most beautiful state in all of the nation. The variety of scenery you have here, and I go up and see those sequoia trees. They only grow maybe in one other place in the world, and nowhere is like, and I'm amazed at it, and I love God for His creation. John isn't talking about it. He is not saying, do not love the planet. And he's don't, he certainly isn't saying, don't love the people. So what does he mean here with this term, cosmos? He is talking about the poisonous system of evil that has infected the world, that is causing the world to die causing every human being to die, causing everything to be contaminated by the devil. So he says, do not love the world, referring to the false system of evil that has overtaken the world. For example, in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, the same book, you are of God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He's not talking about the rocks and the trees. He's talking about the system of evil. You have overcome the world, he says. They are of the world, therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world. The NIV puts it that way, the New International Version. People, he said, who don't know Christ are speaking from the viewpoint of the world. Not the viewpoint of a tree, not the viewpoint of a particular person, but from the viewpoint of the poisonous system of evil that has infiltrated and taken over our planet. And he says, if you know Christ, you have overcome that. They speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, he said, even our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And at the end of the book, he says, we are of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The last couple of years, I can't get that verse out of my mind, except for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. The entirety, the totality of the rest of the world is under the evil one the world of academia, the world in the colleges and the universities, except for believers who are in them, it's all under the control of the evil one. That's why we're getting such awful philosophies and curricula coming from it. And the whole world of the law enforcement and the whole world of the military and the whole world of politics and the whole world of diplomacy and the whole world of entertainment, 
All of it is under the control of the evil one, except for those of us who know Jesus Christ. And he put some of us right in the middle of it all to be his representatives in the midst of an evil world. So this is what John is talking about here. He is saying, love the planet. I mean, appreciate the beautiful sunsets and sunrises and the weather and the storms and the lightning and the thunder and the things that awe you about nature. Love the people of the world, but don't fall in love with the evil, poisonous system and philosophy that has infiltrated the world and is corrupting every single institution. So that's what he means here. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now, that's the command, but he gives us some commentary about it. He says, for everything that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but of the world. And this very interesting phrase here at the end of verse 15 says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. It doesn't mean that you can't love other people. It means that if you fall in love with this poisonous world system, you cannot do that and give yourself to it and at the same time love the God who gave himself for you, who created you. It's impossible. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. James said in James chapter 4, he said, beloved, do not, um, he said, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, that's a very distinct thing, isn't it? Can you imagine something like that in the Bible? But there it is. If you fall in love with the system of evil that is in the world, then it is impossible for you to love Jesus, to love God. You can't love both. They're mutually exclusive, he is saying. And James and John both are reflecting what Jesus said when he said you love this one or that one, but you can't love both. So this is why he is writing here to Christians, telling them you've got to fall out of love with the world because if you love the poisonous system of the world, then you cannot at the same time love Jesus. Now, he's going to delineate this in three different areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh has to do with our appetites and our pleasures. When God made us, he created us to need things for our survival, for our well-being. I don't know why he did that. God doesn't need anything. He is totally self-sufficient. There is nothing that he needs. But he made us to be reliant upon certain things. And then he very graciously provided for everything that we need. For example, we need food. You can't live for very long without food. And he filled the world with food. We need water to drink. He filled the world with water. We need air to breathe, and the atmosphere is filled with life-sustaining oxygen for us. We need sex, and he created marriage. I mean, the Lord has made everything we need. What the devil wants to do is to get inside those needs and exploit them against us so that they become self-destructive, and we drink too much, we eat too much, we indulge too much, 
We take these normal needs and they are outsized because of the devil's maneuvering of our lives and they become self-destructive to us and that is the lust of the flesh. And we see it, for example, in sex. The Lord knows that there are needs here and relationships and He created marriage. But I read yesterday, I think it's in the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post, about a couple in Florida and the man took an indecent picture of his wife and they decided they'd put it up for sale on the internet and they negotiated a price and that began a whole production and now they've hired many other people who work there and they are all the time disrobing and taking pictures and selling them and it is a multi-million dollar business now and that is what happens in this world over and over again and there was a survey the other day that said that 50% one half of all of the teenagers in this world learn about sex only through pornography. Not Christian parents, not godly mentors in their life, not good teachings from the church or from the appropriate units, but from pornography. And that is so evil that how can anything really good come from that in a person's life? He is saying, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, is not from the Father. He wants to meet your needs in healthy, legitimate ways, but the devil wants to exploit your needs against you. And you just can't let that happen. The Lord will help you to avoid it, like the verse we heard from the baptism. No temptation has taken you except what is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted except that He will give you a way of escape so that you can bear it. Well, that's the first area that John warns us about here is our appetites. And what he was really saying, if you love someone, then you will bring about changes in your life. You will determine to change. When I got married, I had some habits out of the men's dorm. You know, we live like slobs. And Katrina said, now, if you love me, you know, and I was willing to change my behavior because I loved her. If we love the Lord Jesus, we'll be willing to change our behavior in these areas, and He will help us to do it because He loves us even more than we love Him. The second thing here is acquisitions, not just our appetites, the lust of the flesh, but also the lust of the eyes. We go out and we see things and we begin to want them, and that is particularly difficult, isn't it, in this age of affluence. We are relatively affluent, every one of us, regardless of our income level, compared to most of human history and compared to a lot of the world today. And how do we determine what is our appropriate lifestyle? That is very hard. And I struggle with it. Uh, For example, yesterday morning, I wanted a cup of coffee. And the coffee pots in the hotel rooms, and you know, they're never very good. So I went down to the lobby, and it was $5 for a cup of coffee. And I paid it and enjoyed my cup of coffee, but I didn't do it today. I knew I'd come here and get a free cup. But, um, <laughs> but we have to make those decisions all the time. How do we invest and spend our money? And a lot of people get into a lot of financial difficulties because it gets out of hand in their lives. I've found, I don't know the full answer of how to navigate affluence, but I have found three things that help me. And one is tithing. My parents taught me with my first paycheck 
to give 10% of it or more to the Lord. And there's something about having that habit in your life that helps you maintain a reasonable sense of value as you go through life because you realize that it's not just the 10% that you give to the Lord that He owns, but He owns the other 90% as well. And it is a constant reminder that we are stewards of all that God has given to us. Another thing that helps me is prayer. Now, sometimes I'll make an impulse purchase, but I try not to because if I can pray about something, then I have a better sense of what I should do about it. For example, I'm having my patio redone in my home in Nashville. When it's done, you're welcome to come. And uh, I have been praying about, should I replace my patio furniture? I mean, that is an item on my prayer list, and I go through and pray about that every day. Lord, show me what to do about my patio furniture, because we, we have all of these accumulations of things, but the Lord, He wants us to be blessed, but He doesn't want us to be foolish, and we need His guidance when it comes to the way that we manage our money. A third thing that helps me is one verse of Scripture at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I keep going back to this, 1 Corinthians 7 near the end of the chapter, Paul says, time is short. Those who buy something should live as if it were not theirs to keep, and those who use the things of this world should not be engrossed with them, for the world in its present form is passing away. So he says, go ahead and buy things, but don't think you're going to keep them very long. Go ahead and enjoy things, but don't be engrossed in them. We're living in a world which buys things and they think they'll have them forever. They'll pay enormous amounts of money for a car or for something, and they think it's going to be theirs forever, or they become engrossed in it. And the Bible says the Lord wants to bless us. But the lust of the eyes is a constant temptation, and you can let greed take over your life, and it takes the economy that God wants to give you, turns it on its head, and it comes back to bite you. So beware the lust of the eyes. And then he talks about the pride of life, your appetites, your acquisitions, and your approval ratings. We all want to be respected, and I do sometimes... We want to be too much. We're concerned about what other people feel about us. And on one hand, we want to be appropriately concerned about our character and our reputation. On the other hand, who cares what the world thinks about you? It's more important what the Lord thinks about you and how you're going to live for Him. I learned this maybe best of all when I was 19 years old and Some of us took a trip. We were invited to go to Montreat, North Carolina from our school in South Carolina to visit with Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, while Billy was away preaching. And she entertained a bunch of us students for the weekend, and she taught us things in the Bible, and it was a wonderful weekend. I mean, I'll never forget some of the things she said. And I asked her. I just, you know, I I was curious about this, and I was 19 years old. Maybe I wouldn't have asked this, you know, if I were more mature, but I said, how does your husband, who is the best-known Christian in the world, more famous than most of the world leaders are, admired everywhere, preaches to crowds of hundreds and thousands, and, and on television, millions of people, 
how does he deal with all of the fame and the glory that comes his way? And she just sort of shook her head and said, he never sees any of that to him. It is just hard work. And then she said, Bill and I, she called him Bill, Bill and I would have been just as happy if the Lord had sent us to some missionary assignment where no one would ever have heard of our names. And I could tell the way that she said that, that she was absolutely sincere, that that was authentic humility. And somehow, despite all that the Lord gave to them, they were able to escape the snare of the pride of life here. But many people are not. So John is saying, be very, very careful about your appetites and about your acquisitions and about your concern about your approval ratings because those things are not from the Father. They're from the world, and the world is passing away. It's not going to be here very long. But then he gives us a commitment. The one who does the will of God lives forever. And the will of God begins by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and devoting, dedicating your life to Him. It says in 1 John chapter 3, and this is His command or His will, that we should believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to love one another as He has commanded us. I believe with all of my heart that there is a God who made us and who loves us and who knows us individually, even though there are billions of people on this planet, and who has an individual plan for every single person on this globe. And the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 16, I saw you before you were born and scheduled each day of your life before you begin to breathe. Every day was recorded in my book. The Lord wants to guide you and bless you and use you and watch over you and give you everlasting life and abundant life now that never ends throughout all of eternity. He's got heaven for you. He's got the angels for you. He's got the city for you. He's got the angels for you. He just wants to give it to those who will say, Lord, I receive it. I am yours. By faith, I take Christ as my Savior, and not my will be done, but your will be done. I believe goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life if I make you my shepherd and I'm going to follow you. This is the way that a friend of mine put it the other day when we were having supper. I have a friend, Stephen James, who is a Christian novelist and a writer and a storyteller and a speaker. And he came to Nashville, called me. This has just been a couple of weeks ago. He said, can you have supper? And I said, I'd love to have supper. And we met together, and he immediately started telling me about his friend, Michael Bright. He said, Michael and I grew up together. He said, you'll enjoy this story. It's true. He said, Michael had an abusive father, not a very good home life. And in those days, we had television shows we watched and the old black and white screens with the tubes and everything. And I certainly remember that. Some of you do. In my little mountain town in Tennessee, we only got two stations, Bristol and Johnson City, Channel 5 and Channel 11, and we'd have to go up on the roof and change the aerial to get one or the other of them. But they had these relatively innocent shows, uh, and I would watch them every afternoon when I got home from school, 
And so one of them was Roy Rogers and Dell Evans. Some of you don't have any idea who that was, but he was a cowboy on television. Well, Michael, as he watched Roy Rogers day after day on the old black and white screen, fell in love with that man, said, that's what a father ought to be. I've never seen a father before, but I think that is what a father should be, that kind of person. And he adopted Roy, as it were, as his dad. And he began collecting all kinds of Roy Rogers memorabilia, you know, the lunch boxes and the, the rifles and the pistols and the star, you know, and the little, he had a horse trigger and little statues of that. And he always just thought of Roy Rogers as my dad. And when he was a young adult, he found out that there was a museum devoted to Roy Rogers. And he went out, it was here in California, and he went out to visit it, and he was just looking at everything. And the lady who was selling the tickets there, he went up to her and said, does Roy Rogers ever come here himself? And she thought a moment. She said, yes. He comes every Thursday to have lunch in the cafe. So Michael delayed his trip, and he made sure he was there Thursday before lunch, and in came Roy Rogers. And Michael introduced himself, and he began telling his story, and Roy was intrigued. He said, well, come and have lunch with me. So they went into the cafe, and Michael told his story and about how you've been like a father to me all these years. You didn't know it. And Roy said, we've got to go with me out to the ranch and meet Dale and meet some of the others there. So he took him out to the ranch, and the long story made short is that Michael became a part of their family. And he was there for all of the major holidays, and they thought of him as a son, and Roy Rogers really did become, in a very personal sense, like his dad. And Roy kept giving him more memorabilia. And he would take that, and his home was almost a museum to Roy Rogers. But Stephen told me that when Michael was in his 50s, he contracted terminal cancer. And Michael struggled with it, but he was a believer. And he came to a point of resignation and yieldedness and said, whatever the Lord wants, I know that I'm going to live forever. And Stephen said, I went and visited him. And I walked in. He had Roy Rogers stuff all over the house. And he says, you sure have a great collection. And Michael said, you know what all of this is, Stephen? It is all junk. Nothing but junk. The only thing that matters is that I know Jesus and I'm going to heaven. That takes our perspective in the right direction, doesn't it? Paul said, all of the things that I accumulated, they're like garbage compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And that is so important if it, will, if it can be drilled down into our hearts and we begin to live that way, we will be altogether different people with a sort of joy and happiness that nobody else can explain. And we can go into this dark world with all of its poisonous philosophies and we can be the light and we can be the salt and we can be the people who ask, do you know Christ as Savior? And they will say, well, I want the hope that is within you. What is it? And you say, it's Christ the Savior and we can make a difference in this world for Jesus. Now, that's what John is getting across here.
His saying, do not love this poisonous world system. It's very subtle, very dangerous. It comes through pleasure. It comes through possessions. It comes through pride, and it's poisonous. If you love this world system, the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father. It's from the poisonous world system that just engulfs our planet. And those who live according to that system find that everything they live for will eventually pass away. But the one who lives out God's will for his or her life consistently day by day, based upon Jesus Christ and guided by the Scripture, that person lives forever. Is that person here? Is that person you? If not, then I want to appeal to you, to beg you today, if you're watching online, if you're in this room, whatever it is, to remember that God loves you. And the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And wherever you are right now, you can say, Lord, forgive my sins. I here and now receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. This is a decision you can make today. You can kneel down. You can bow your heads. You can do it here. You can do it later this afternoon. But you don't want to wait because the Bible says today is the day of salvation. He who being often reproved hardens his heart shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy, the Bible says, that you have an opportunity. You're alive, you're breathing, you're on this beautiful planet, and you have a God who loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I beg you to begin living for Him alone. Rededicate your life to Christ. Give Him all there is of you, and He'll give you all there is of Him and control and empower and guide you. And there is no life in all of the world like living out of love with this world and totally in love with our Lord. And that is my prayer for you today. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I pray for any man or woman or young person, a teenager who is here, They've seen baptisms. They've heard your word. For those, Lord, who may be watching all over the world online, may they today be absolutely, utterly, eagerly willing to make Jesus Christ Lord of their lives, to give themselves fully to the one who gave himself fully to them, and to fall out of love with the world in love with the Word, and all together in love with you who loves us so. Father, may there be those even today, even right now, who make that choice. And we pray once again, Lord, for your blessings on this church, on its marvelous, faithful, hard-working, spirit-touched pastor. May this coming weekend be one of the great weekends in his life, in our lives, and in this church. And Lord, we ask you to bless us and keep us and let your face smile upon us and give us peace in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing and engineering is done by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com, where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you for tuning in, and may God be with you until we meet again.